Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. All adventurous, and I was thinking that John is so detailed in, in some of his trial that we were going to be able to get through a lot of verses. I was very, I was being very adventurous. I had planned in my mind maybe I could get through John 19, verse 16, and I present to you tonight five verses. Amen. John 18, verse 28. The Bible says, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas into the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation do you, what accusation bring ye against this man? And they answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him. And judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Tonight, and I'm really probably dabbling in in more than these five verses, probably all the way through verse 16 of chapter 19, uh, but the main thrust of what I want to talk about tonight is caught between two worlds caught between two worlds amen father i come to you tonight we're so thankful lord jesus for being able to be here we're thankful lord god for your lord jesus diligence lord to meet god with us i pray god that we can reciprocate lord that we would lord have a similar hunger and desire god for you jesus even in this place tonight open our minds and our understanding god will not fail to thank you lord jesus for what you accomplished through your word in the name of jesus christ that i pray amen the church say amen you may be seated again when we consider the trial of the lord jesus christ and if we had enough time in the night and everybody wouldn't check out on me it'd be great just to look at the whole trial of jesus from beginning to end uh between uh with the jews and with the romans and just kind of look at it as a collective setting uh but time does not avail us of that because jesus really again trial concerning a religious trial with the jews he had that uh with annas and caiaphas and and those that were seen to uh, the lord he also had a civil what we might more call a civil trial among the romans and uh that 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 was between pilate and herod and back with pilate and so it'd be great to look at it all but we cannot however in the gospel of john john focuses more so on the the roman trial side than he does the jewish side the jewish side of the trial there are some phases of jesus's trial that john leaves out in his gospel he doesn't go through any details about jesus standing before caiaphas just the simple fact that he was brought from caiaphas to pilate and that's all we know about what took place there we don't read of anything concerning his trial before herod in the gospel of john here and so he leaves that out as well 
But John is very detailed in what he does provide for us concerning the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I thought that would allow us to cover several verses, I was wrong. That just means we get stuck in the mud. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, we're going to cover some things tonight. We left off last week with the rooster or the cock crowing and Peter understanding that was the sign, amen, that was given to him by the Lord that he would have denied the Lord three times before the cock would have crowed. And so John picks up the story again after Jesus' interaction with Caiaphas as the scripture tells us. They led Jesus from Caiaphas unto Pilate. And so it's really quite interesting because Jesus has been in a shifting movement without any rest, it seems, since he left the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. He's brought before Annas. From Annas, he goes to Caiaphas. From Caiaphas, he goes to Pilate. From Pilate, he's going to have trial there. And there's Herod, of course, in between there that John doesn't pick up on. Two Herod, back to Pilate. He's going to be beat with rods, crown of thorns on the head. He's going to go from there. And he's going to walk to Calvary. It's almost a seamless thread that he's just shifting from one place to another, stands before this person and the other. And so he doesn't have much rest before Calvary. And uh, Calvary's going to be quite gruesome and uh, taking someone to the degree of what they can withstand. And he's going there without any rest. And the Bible says he's brought to Pilate at the Hall of Judgment. It's known as the Praetorium uh, in history in Jerusalem. Pilate did not typically reside in Jerusalem. He normally resided and his headquarters was in Caesarea, but he's in Jerusalem right now because Passover has taken place. It's one of the high feast days of the Jews, so he went there. The number of population is increasing. There's a greater probability of riot and, and things that can take place in the city, so he and a detachment of soldiers are in Jerusalem at the judgment hall making sure everything's going to be okay during this high festival day. Also, Pilate, sometimes we go to Jerusalem because he did have to uh, put forth government and governance to the people. And so every once in a while, he would go there and operate from the judgment hall. And this judgment hall, just right outside of there, you'll see in the next chapter, chapter number 19, is the place called the pavement or Gabbatha, this is where the judgment seat was. They're called the Bema seat, oftentimes, even in New Testament Scripture. This is where the judgment seat was, where the judge would sit down and oftentimes give his verdict about people's circumstances. Because whenever it was during this time, it wasn't anything uh, for Pilate to entertain a lot of pleas from a lot of people. And I'll talk about that here in just a little bit. And so uh, it's early in the morning, the Bible says, when they come to the judgment hall. The Jews didn't typically hold any type of judicial matters at night although they may have made an exception with Jesus Christ. We know it was night whenever they went and got him and they took him to Annas and then from Annas to Caiaphas, so they may have made an exception. And you got to remember maybe perhaps why they wanted to do this because they're wanting to keep all their little antics about what they're doing with the Lord somewhat secretive because they have already feared, Matthew and Mark bear this out, they had already feared that if they're going to kill the Lord, if they're going to do anything to him, they said, we didn't want to do it on the feast day. Well, they 
blown that to a certain degree. They didn't want to do it on a feast day because there might be an uproar among the people. So they wanted to keep this hidden. So perhaps they took him at night and did judicial matters at night for the sake of keeping it hidden. But after they had finished their trial as the Jewish people and they got what they believe is a, an accusation or some type of plea of guilt upon the Lord and Savior, they take him onto the Roman government. So it was early in the morning whenever Jesus was taken to his trial in Rome. Now, they didn't bother the Romans. I just, this is just a little history, really, to begin with. Didn't bother the Romans. The Romans were known to start their day's governors, for that matter, very early. Many times before dawn, they would start their day. And so, for this purpose, start early, finish early. It's their motto. They started early. They could finish early, spend the rest of the day, maybe in leisure, sipping something from their chalice, you know, having some entertainment of dancers. And so... It's quite possible they started early, yes, as Scripture says, and found Pilate there. Again, I said Pilate took care of a lot of matters when he was in town. History says that he would take care of anywhere from 700 to 750 people that came before him in a day for the different pleas and matters and concerns that they had. Great matters he took care of, trivial matters. He had other people that he would take care of. But the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ would have been a great matter for Pilate to be involved with. The Bible says as they brought, get the picture, the Jews are bringing Jesus to the Romans, to Pilate in particular. The Bible says the Jews did not go into the judgment hall because they feared they would be defiled and they wanted to eat the Passover. After the day of Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread that lasts for seven days. They want to be able to partake in all of these things that take place. Now, I want to stop just for a moment and for us all to think because that information that was just given us is quite ironic and borderline ridiculous. And I'll tell you why. Because this is one of those cases with the Jews that Scripture speaks about that they almost strained at a gnat and they swallowed a camel. It's a figurative way of saying they majored on something minor and they minored on something major. They did not want to enter the judgment hall because they thought going in there they might become ceremoniously unclean. However, at this moment they seem to be neglecting the bigger picture here about what they're doing with an innocent man. I don't want to enter the I don't want to enter the judgment hall. I might not be able to participate in all the festivities of unleavened bread. But here's this innocent man. Can we kill him? I mean, really, that is that is the irony and how ridiculous this all is. They're straining at a gnat, so to speak, but they are swallowing a camel. They're wanting to avoid ceremonial uncleanness but they have no regard for any type of their own moral guilt and what they're about ready to do. And so they don't enter the Gentiles' house. It, it was common knowledge that Gentiles' uh, houses were typically unclean, denoted unclean. Some people footnote and say they were unclean because uh, if the wives ever had a stillborn baby or the wife or, or, or the individual, their baby aborted for whatever reason, they oftentimes buried that child in their house or they put 
what was born down the drains of their house and so that would cause them to be unclean the old testament law said that if the individual came in contact with with the dead corpse or more importantly if they went into the tent where a dead corpse where where a body had died that they would be unclean for seven days so they don't want no nothing to do with that we want to participate in passover we want to participate in unleavened bread so we're not even going to chance that but Although we're conscious about uncleanness that may result from something dying in that place, we're not concerned about killing. I just, you know, where does this all shuffle out? And so they're satisfied that the unclean was unclean, but they're dissatisfied that the perfect, Jesus Christ, was perfect. They saw a blemish among the unblemished lamb. For that matter, the true Passover. That New Testament tells us even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Avoid contamination, but let's bend the legal system. And this is what the Scripture says then in verse 29. Pilate went out to them. See, we're not coming into you. We might get contaminated. So what does that mean Pilate's got to do? He's got to go out to them. They wouldn't come inside the hall, so Pilate goes outside of the hall. And this is very important. Please pay attention right here. This is very, you don't have to pay attention any other time except here. This is very important because as you continue reading the trials of Jesus and what, what happens leading up to his crucifix, you're going to find that Pilate over and over again is going to go into the judgment hall to speak to Jesus because that's where he was brought into, he, he went. He's going to come into the judgment hall to speak to Jesus, and he'll go back out of the judgment hall to speak to the Jews. So he's going to talk to them, talk to them for a while. He's going to go over here. He's going back over here, talk to Jesus. Jesus is going to answer questions. He's going back out here. He's going to talk back and forth. Look at it. You can look at it in your Bibles if you would want with me. He's doing this because they didn't want to be contaminated. Verse 33 of your Bible, Pilate entered the judgment hall. Verse 38, Pilate went out to the Jews. Chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate took Jesus to scourge him. He had to go back into the judgment hall. Verse number four, it's in your Bibles. I'm telling you. Pilate goes out to the Jews. Verse number nine of chapter 19, Pilate went to the judgment hall. He got his steps in, didn't he, that day? Verse number 13, Pilate then brings Jesus out to the judgment seat for all to see and him to give his verdict. So he's in, in the judgment hall, outside the judgment hall, in the judgment hall, outside the judgment hall, in the judgment hall, outside the judgment hall. What this does for you and I, it sets us up again for Pilate going back and forth. Watch this, between two vastly different spheres. In one place, though it's deemed, according to the Jews, to be a contaminated place, contaminated place, in one place is Jesus. In the other place and space are the Jews. Oh, they're good people. But listen, we're talking about Jews right now that are rejecting the Messiah. We're talking about Jews right now that's rejecting the fact that Jesus Christ has come to save. They're rejecting everything he is that he stands for, right? They're rejecting him. If I'm stated in terms like this, they are really a good symbol of the world at that moment in time. They, they are no different than the rest of the world. They are rejecting the one who can save them. So we got two different spheres one that is just Jesus, and the other one, if I may, the world. And Pilate is ping-ponging back and forth between audience with Jesus and audience with the world. 
As a matter of fact, Pilate goes in at different times and he questions Jesus. He's interactive with Jesus. And there's other times he leaves that sphere and enters the Jewish world sphere and he asks them questions. And he interacts with them. And all the while, while he is doing this, what Pilate is attempting to do is to come to his own verdict concerning the Lord. To do that, he consults the Lord and he consults the world sometimes. He asks questions of the world and he asks questions of the Lord sometimes because he's in a position he needs to make a decision for himself about he is caught between two worlds. Amen. He weighs each respectively. You see it in the trial. He weighs what Jesus has to say against what the world has to say. Back and forth. This isn't simply Jesus and the world, but again, Pilate is playing a part in each. And both of what they would say, that how they would answer their questions, would come to bear upon Pilate, have influence upon Pilate about what his final verdict, his final answer was going to be. For Pilate, it was this. I got to choose between Jesus and Jesus' antagonist. I got to choose between between Jesus and the world. And it comes to find out it's really all of ours place. We all, as we are born into this world and we have an introduction to the Son of Man, we all find ourselves caught between two worlds. And we investigate and we ask questions of Jesus. And then we investigate and ask questions of the world. And the world doesn't want anything to do with him. And they don't think we ought to either. But Jesus is just... Someone say amen. amen. See, Pilate's position is the, is the position of every individual because each of us have to arrive at our verdict. We got to arrive at our verdict for Jesus Christ. Do you crucify him? Or he, is he indeed a king that has all power? Is the crowd right about their opinion of him? Should he be crucified? Has he claimed something that he is not? Should we? You can read it in the scripture. You'll find later the Bible says that the crowd, the Jews said, we have no king except Caesar of that moment in time of the world of Rome. So should we live our lives with no king? Save the one that appears to rule the present world? Hmm? This is what Pilate is warring with. Are the world's accusations enough to convict Jesus? Or is Jesus' convictions enough to release him to operate at his will in my life? So how does this affect you? How, someone asked that, how does this affect me? How does this affect you? Because Pilate, here he is, if I let Jesus go, the crowd says, hear me, the crowd says that he poses a threat to the king of this world. If I let him go, he poses a threat to the king of this world. How does that, Pilate's got to say, how does that reflect upon me? Because I'm a governor 
underneath the king of this world. I'm a governor underneath Caesar. I work for Caesar. How does this affect me then if I let someone go that is a threat to someone that right now is above me? If I crucify him, this is, you'll find this later in the story. We'll get to it one of these weeks. And if we don't do it before uh, connect groups start again, I've, I've toyed with the idea of continuing with this on Sunday mornings just to continue. But nonetheless, if I crucify him because the Jews finally came out, hey, it's blasphemy. This is the son of God. Oh, wait a minute, son of God? Now, Pilate isn't necessarily a Jesus religious man, a Jewish man, but he does believe in God. He's polytheistic. And they had been superstitious to the degree of thinking that the gods, and you see this in the book of Acts, uh, I think it happened to Paul and Barnabas when they did something, some of the people thought that the gods had come down among them. He's thinking, if I do crucify him, am I perchance laying a finger on an actual son of a god somewhere? And if I do that, could I not only personally do myself right now, but also for the world to come. Is everybody doing all right? So in one sphere, Pilate with his aloneness with Jesus, and he's convinced, three times you hear him say it in John, he's convinced with his engagement with the Lord, he comes back out, I find no fault with this man. Find no fault with his man. But once he gets out here where the Jews are, voices start to raise. Clamor starts to happen in the crowd. Crucify him. Crucify him. And what he was so convinced about alone with Jesus. When the clamor of the crowd began to rise, he's now like, let's reconsider this. Caught between two. I, man, I am just torn up inside with the Holy Ghost today because there is people in this ever-living world right now that as long as they have audience with the king, they're convinced there's no fault with him. There's nothing wrong with him. Can't lay a finger upon him. He's healed our blind eyes. He's raised our dead. He's brought them back to life again. He gave us food when we were hungry, drink when we were thirsty, and all it takes is a trip from that world to this world. And when the clamor of the crowd begins to cry out, say, no, it's not all that, crucify him. Then they back up and reconsider, maybe, maybe there is some fault that we could let. No, 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 you are caught between two worlds. Pilate begins to second-guess his convictions. He wrestles with this. This is how it always goes. Look what Pilate begins to wrestle with in the Scripture. Read it all. Read, read through chapter 19, verse, six, verse 16 tonight. He wrestles with the fact when he hears the crowd, maybe I can somehow meet a compromise. Here in your Bibles. Maybe I can meet a compromise where I can appease the crowd. but I can still in some fashion let Jesus live. Maybe I can appease them and get them what they want to be happy and still allow Jesus to live. Maybe rather than killing him, I can just injure him. 
Whenever you read in the book of John, John 19, verse number 1, that Pilate scourged Jesus, no, that scourging took place before there was ever a verdict that was given. There are three different levels of scourging. I'm totally off my notes, okay. There are three different levels of scourging by the Romans. One that wasn't so severe, one that was mediocre, the other one that left a person where you could see their entrails and their internal organs from the scourging. It's quite possible that Jesus went through a couple of scourgings. Pilate using the first scourging prior to his verdict just as a let's hurt him and maybe the people will be satisfied with the wounding and we won't have to kill him. They'll be happy. He'll still live. That was his compromise. But the scourging that happened before he went to Calvary crucifix is a scourging, Sister Margaret, where they laid him bare. They, they had that cat of nine tails that were made of leather and straps that had bone and chunks of metal that was tied in them. And every time that person was tied to a post with their back to whoever, and every time they laid that whip to him and pulled back, chunks of flesh were coming. Bones, sinew, internal organs, Brother Trout, was even exposed. History says if other people went through the same thing, were exposed. But Pilate, first of all, is like, what kind of compromise can we, can we come to? Because we can let him live, especially if he is a son of God. I wouldn't want to go that far. But I don't want to look bad in the eyes of the Jews either. Caught. Caught. Between two worlds. But mark pastor's words tonight. That the crowd will never be satisfied with a living Savior. Because a living Savior according to them, threatens the God of their world. Oh, you're saying that's Caesar. Yeah, Caesar was revered to a degree as a God. That's the reason why they pinched a little bit of incense and said, hell, Caesar. That was because Caesar came to a place that he was revered as a God. He was the God of their world. So they don't want a living Savior because that will bring a threat to the God of their world. Someone say amen. But... If you are a friend of the God of this world, then you're set at enmity with the God. And if you set Jesus at liberty in this world and set Jesus at liberty, listen to me, in your world, your life, you just signed the threat. You just signed, if you will, the chase for the God of your world. It's not going to have it's kingdom power in your life anymore. If the other gospel accounts, when you read them, again, something that John doesn't include, John doesn't include whenever after Pilate had given the verdict of the washing of the hands of Pilate. Pilate and the other gospels, some of the other gospels, he washes his hands of the blood of Jesus, symbolizing basically that I have no part in this crucifix. I've just given him to the will of the people, whatever you want to do to do, he washes his hands. But as with Pilate, listen to me, so with us, we will have a say whether to release Jesus in our life or crucify the Jesus in our life. And the question that I want to present to us tonight is this why do we allow the Jews the crowd the world to dictate our choices in public someone say in public in public when we've already come to a proper verdict in private 
I find no fault. Let's compromise. He shouldn't die. I'll leave that up to you. I'll, I'll release him. Well, if, he's not re- if he can't be released, he ain't going to die. But your releasing sets him up for private, public. But what we get in our spirit in private, it's snatched away from us in public because of the crowd. Caught between two worlds. And what it really comes down to, what it really comes down to, it's not about really him being the son of God. It's not about really you trying to make God happy. And it's not about you really trying to make the crowd happy. It's, you, it's all about what you want to do concerning you, what makes you happy. That's what it's really about. You're caught between two worlds because your definitive decision is going to affect you one way or the other. The definitive decision is going to push you toward one crowd or the other. There won't be a gray area. There won't be the walking back and forth. There won't be the here and there and thither and hither. When you make the verdict, you choose a side. When you make the verdict, caught between two worlds. There's people that's going to meet rapture and they're going to still be going to the judgment hall and going out to the world. Going to the judgment hall and going out to the world. And they're going to stand before God and saying, God, I just didn't have enough time. Listen, you had the time that you needed to make a verdict, to make a choice, to make a decision. You had ample evidence on both sides to make a reliable decision. between two worlds. I'm going to crucify him because Pilate's worried about how he'll look in everybody's eyes that thinks differently than him. So what comes down to is this. Pilate sacrificed an innocent man to save himself. In reality, that's the story for us all. An innocent man was sacrificed to save us. Listen, unless someone would say, see, Brother McGee, I'm all right. Since that's already happened, since Calvary's already taken place, and the blood has already drenched the ground at Golgotha, since that's already happened, then why should we forfeit his life on this side of Calvary? Huh, Sister Malin, it's not like I got to offer him up for a crucifix again. Because he entered one time, Hebrew says. And the sacrifice was forever. There's no need for you to sacrifice his life again in your life. Because it only took a one-time trip. Yet we still find ourselves caught between two worlds. Pilate was eventually banished by Caligula, which was a Caesar later, to Gaul. Pilate was banished there, a distant region far to the north, 
west of Italy, beyond the Alps. There, history says, he suffered an emotional mental breakdown. And ultimately, he committed suicide. Even more detailed, it went in several different sources, even a little more detailed, it says that he killed himself on orders from the emperor. That would be the king of the world. That would be the God of their world. Pilate ends up killing himself upon orders of the God of his world. You want to see the difference between the two worlds I'm talking about? In this world over here, the God of the world commands his subjects to die for him. In this world over here, the God of this world dies for his subjects. And yet we're caught. That is really what a friend of Caesar is. The Bible speaks later in verse number 12 of chapter 19 that the Jews kind of bring it up to Pilate. Said, if you release, if you release, if you release Jesus, then you are no friend of Caesar. That was like a, a, a normal title to be a friend of Caesar. But being a friend of this world, being a friend of the God of this world, what will it get you? It'll get you a loss of life. Pilate, Pilate thought he would lose his life if word got back to Caesar. If he, he knew that he might potentially release Jesus, which was potentially in the eyes of many another king, that he would lose his life. Yet he lost his life because he didn't release Jesus into the world and into his life. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will right you're gonna you're gonna find it what accusation let's go on that's the that's the thrust of my lesson that means I only have 10 more pages left verse number 29 so Pilate goes out to them he asks them the question what accusation do you have against Jesus Christ what do you have against him they follow up and tell him basically this it was really kind of like trying not to say much but say enough be vague, but not real detailed. Well, if he wasn't a malefactor, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Okay, the question was, what accusation do you... So, well, if he wasn't... Malefactor basically means this, an evildoer. If he wasn't an evildoer, then we... Well, that's real vague. If he wasn't an evildoer, then we would not have brought him to you uh, the Jews and maybe Pilate and some of the Romans already had some conversation prior to this moment remember that it was Jewish soldiers and also Roman soldiers that went to the garden of Gethsemane to apprehend the Lord so they may already had somewhat of discussion nonetheless whenever they come to Pilate with the Lord Pilate opens up this whole thing he opens a hearing on it as though whatever they may have formally discussed that he wasn't really sure about it was evidently enough to arrest the Lord but maybe Maybe not enough to convict the Lord. Right? Evildoer. I mean, Peter even told those in his day whenever he went to Cornelius' house and he preached to the house of a Cornelia, Cornelius, amen, slurred all today. In Acts chapter number 10, he said, in my opinion, he said, Jesus Christ went about, the Bible says, doing good. Now that sounds like a far cry from an evildoer. He was a good doer. He was a good doer. And so the Jews respond with their snide comment because they genuinely don't have 
an accusation. John has already told us in his, his Gospels through the words of Jesus. Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. Again, I healed their sick. They hated me. Fed their hungry. They hated me. I raised their dead. They hated me. These are not evil deeds. Yet they hated him without, no accusation, without a cause. And so by Pilate, he, he, he kind of trades snide comment for, eh, give you that. See how you like those apples, you know. He says, well, judge him, judge Jesus by your own law. And the Jews retort, we can't put him to death. Here's the thing. Since the Jews at this period of time is under the rule of Rome, the rule of Rome kind of had some rules that they had. They're a little bit cocky. And they did not allow the Jews or any other people besides the Jews, other groupings and sects, not S-E-X, but S-E-C-T, sects of people under them. He did not allow them to put a man to death. Rome wanted control of that narrative in the lives of the people that were under them. Pilate knew that. The Jews knew that. So Pilate says, well, you go on and judge him and come to your own agreement. Well, we want him dead. We can't do that without your permission. So Pilate showed in that instance that the Jews needed him to accomplish what they wanted done. And so they were going to have to endure the process of a Roman verdict, a Roman trial. And according to the Jews, Jesus should die. But the question is, will Rome agree? Now listen to me tonight. All of that seems very logical and it's very linear. It's very logical. But John tells us everything that's happening right now, it's more than logical. It's very spiritual. Because he tells us in verse number 32. Whenever the Jews say it's not lawful for us to put a man to death, he says that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake signifying what death he should die. So this isn't just logical. This is spiritual. He says because of this, Scripture is being fulfilled. Prophecy is being fulfilled concerning what way Jesus is to die. Jesus signified what death he should die, even in the Gospel of John. If I be lifted up, I'll draw. He said, as Moses held up the snake on the post, so shall I be lifted up. And in each of those scenarios, he was saying, the Bible even indicates to us that he was signifying by what death he should die. Now, let's consider something for a moment. Some of the prophecies about Jesus' death, some of the prophecies about him dying on a cross, date back as far as nine centuries. You heard me right, centuries. Nine centuries even before Jesus was born. 900 years before Jesus was even born, prophecies were being recorded about him dying on a cross. And at that year, nine centuries before Jesus' birth, crucifix was not even yet known or practiced. <laughs> so yes, normally under Jewish law, Jewish law permitted death regularly, you see in the Old Testament, by stoning, not by crucifix. But the death that Jesus is talking about that's prophesied of, that he spoke of in the book of John, is very specific. It's about going to a tree. It's about taking the handwritings of the ordinances that were against us and nailing them to the tree. Stoning did not involve lifting up. Stoning 
involved pushing down. There's not a whole lot of resources within the Bible, but there's extra biblical resources during the same time that the Bible was written that gives us account how a person was stoned. So we're not talking about the way the Jews would do it. We're talking about the way that someone outside of the Jews had to do it. The Romans. This, what was happening, was not just something logical. It was something spiritual. To stone a person, they would place, the place where they would stone a person usually had to be twice a man's height. They would cast him down to this area that was twice, did you know, casting down into this area that was quite twice his height, and it usually had stones. They were casting him down upon stones. Then one of the witnesses, they would push him by the hips so that he was overturned on his heart so that when he fell, he would fall face first on the rocks. And if that didn't take care of business, then they would turn him over with his back on the rocks. And a man that was the first witnesses, because by two, at least three witnesses, someone met death. They had to have a witness. The first witness would go up and grab a huge rock and cast it down upon the chest. So it was a rock, man rock. And if that didn't take care of things, then the second witness would come along and do something very similar. And if he hadn't died by that, then all the other people of Israel and those that were gathered around would take their turns of casting and throwing stones at him. So when we're talking about being lifted up, we're not talking about stoning the typical way of punishment for the Jew because they cast him down. We are talking about lifting up. We are talking about exactly what John is talking about. This is going to be a death by crucifix. They are going to lift him up. They are going to nail him. And God, through his infinite wisdom, has orchestrated all of this. He has used Pilate. He has used the Jews. He has used this person to bring it all about to come to bear to this very moment. So not only did the Jews need Rome, and I say this, please understand, I say this gingerly, but Jesus also needed Rome in order to fulfill the prophecies and the scriptures that were written. It appears that Jesus in these scriptures appears he's not in control. He's not even really saying all that much. Amen. And yet God has orchestrated all of this. Look what the Bible says later in the book of Acts, chapter number 2 and verse 23. Peter is preaching his message on Pentecost. He's trying to get the people to see that they rejected their Messiah, that they rejected the one that came to save them. And he tells them him, in verse 23, speaking of Jesus of Nazareth, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands ye have crucified and slain. In scripture there are certain aspects of God's will that are challenging for us to reason with. And it should be because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts according to Isaiah. If you could understand everything God did then you would be God. So we must trust the plan's designer. It may be hard for, uh, for some to realize that although Jesus' crucifix was quite cruel and it was carried about by wicked hands of men, it was still in direct line with the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Jesus' crucifix was the predetermined will of God. Isaiah even said in his prophecy, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Let's, let's say it like this. 
the crucifix wasn't plan B. It was plan A from the very foundation of the world. It's not like, oh, this is kind of turning south, huh? What can we do about this? Oh, crucifix, there we go. It's not an afterthought. God's determinate counsel, God's foreknowledge, his will were in the play before the world even began. And the people that took Jesus and did all this, yes, they were still responsible because although God delivered Jesus unto them, they took him. Look, if Christ, if his purpose was to become a curse for the people that was cursed, then he couldn't accomplish that by being stoned. He had to accomplish that by hanging on a tree because the Jews, even Old Testament law said, cursed is every man that hangeth on a... That's not accomplished by stoning, Sister Malin, but that is accomplished by crucifix. I'm coming to close. Don't get nervous. Luke 24, death, burial, resurrection has happened. Jesus has resurrected. He's on the verge of his ascension. Forty days after his passion, he has has exposed himself unto the men. He's proved himself by many things. And he says prior to his departure, then opened he there his disciples' understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ. Everybody say behooved. We don't use that word anymore. Not much. I might use it every once in a while. My wife probably knows. It behooved Christ. The word behooved means it was necessary. It was binding. It must be. It needs to be. Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. It behooved. It was necessary for him to die and be buried and resurrect so that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name. The death, the burial, and the resurrection needed to happen because repentance and remission of sins needed to be preached. And since the basis, since the pattern for our repentance and baptism and infilling of the Holy Ghost is death and burial and resurrection... It must happen. You don't have the availability of repentance without his death. You don't have the availability of a watery grave of baptism in Jesus' name for the remission of sins without his burial. You don't have the chance of Holy Ghost infilling in your life without him being resurrected from that death, from that burial. It is a must. And yet we're caught between two worlds. Stand with me. Major Ian Thomas says this. I love this. You almost need to practice it. It's a little bit wordy, but it's good. Major Ian Thomas summed it up like this, speaking of Jesus. He had to be what he was in order to do what he did. He had to do what he did in order that we might have what he is. And we must have what he is in order to be what he was. I'll say it one more time. Where he was and I know. He had to be what he was in order to do what he did. He had to do what he did in order that we might have what he is. And we must have what he is in order to be what he was. Caught. 
What are you going to do with Jesus? I, I don't want you to tell me what the world says we should do with him. What are you going to do with him? I know he's, they say he's not a king, and he says, thou sayest that I am. Which in the real Greek, it just means, he's kind of like this, king, that's your word. That's really what it comes down to, that he said, king, that's your word. I didn't say that, you said that. I like it. What are you going to do with Jesus? Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to be influenced by? Are you measuring out how it's going to affect you? If so, don't measure out just how it affects you now. Ask yourself, how will it affect you for eternity? Let's bow our heads here tonight. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.